welcome to the Fuck the Stigma podcast. Today, I have Jenny joining us from Jenny Sober Lifestyle. I'm excited because I don't usually have people who run podcasts on the podcast, so I'm really excited to hear about your shindig. Yeah. So what is Jenny Sober Lifestyle? Jenny Sober Lifestyle, it's something that I've been saying for a long time. I recover out loud. So my big things are recovering out loud and my sober lifestyle. Um, it's not for everybody, right? So disclaimer, because I, I get some mail, let's just put it that way about like recovering out loud. And, but it works for me. I've been using the catchphrase sober lifestyle just in like posts and things for several years. And I finally like put it to life. Like, okay, this is the vision. Now I need to do something with it. And so it's showing people that you can have a fun, fulfilling, purposeful, sober lifestyle. You know, like a lot of people, they get sober. They're like, fuck, my life as I know it is over. <laughs> That's exactly what I thought. That's what I thought too. So like I got seven years now and when I got sober, I'm like, oh my God, like, who am I? What am I going to do? I'm never going to have fun again. How am I going to meet people? Who am I? You know? And so this is my journey of like learning what, what I like to do. You know, who am I? What excites me? You know, what am I passionate about? Who do I want to surround myself with? And so I created this like recovering out loud, sober lifestyle. And so now I'm like sharing it with the world and hopefully giving hope and inspiring other people to find what, what drives them, what they like, what makes them laugh, what makes them cry, whatever it is. Like, let's do it. Let's have a sober lifestyle. Yeah. You said people don't exactly like that. Why do you think? Listen, I'm all for like the 12 step, right? The programs, but there still is like some old timers out there that like want it to be kept really anonymous. And I think you definitely need to keep it anonymous in the rooms of, of 12 step programs. But like, you know, I'm doing what works for me. And I'm not saying that you need to do it if you don't want to be out there. And if you don't want to talk about it, okay, cool. But yeah, so I get some slack on that. Yeah, I understand, you know, it's one of the main principles, anonymity. Like, I'm not going to expose your recovery. You're not going to expose mine. And if you think about it, what we do with recovering out loud, being open and honest about recovery, that provides insight and a platform for people to feel safe about going through this or helping people identify that they have a substance abuse issue. Yeah. So I think it's necessary, but I do understand their point but I'm not going to expose you. I'm going to expose myself. That's as far as I'm going to go. I'm going to talk about me and that's it. Like we were driving up here from Orange County. So we're in the car for like over two hours. And like this lady had called and she had seen some of my posts and like has now decided to go to treatment for the first time in her life. You know what I mean? And it's so those are the moments where it's like, this is why I do what I do you know, to be able to plant a seed, help somebody along the way. And even that in itself is breaking the stigma. A lot of people don't recover out loud. No, they don't. And that's okay. Yeah. (laughs) But I'm going to do it. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So what exactly made you want to start the podcast and the platform? So I've worked in the clinical setting for seven years. Yeah, I've been sober seven years and worked in clinical setting for seven years, pretty much. I started working right out of like being sober, which I don't recommend doing that, working in treatment, but nonetheless, that was part of my story. So I come from a totally different background. And when I went to treatment, after I got through detox, I'm sitting in residential and I'm like, all right, what am I gonna do with my life now? You know, who am I, what do I wanna do? I just had this like gnarly aha moment, this like spiritual awakening where I just knew that in one capacity or another, I needed to help other people. I was like, all right, this is what I'm gonna do. So I enrolled in school got my KDAC for drug and alcohol studies and started working in treatment as an intern, like right after I got out of treatment. So that slowly like led me down that path. So I started working with other, you know, addicts, alcoholics as a case manager, 
Um, then I got certified as a life coach. I was doing that. Then opened up Women's Sober Living Homes. Mm. I was doing that. And then that segued into me doing business development for one treatment center in particular. And when I came on to work for that treatment center, it was right when COVID hit. Mm. And I'm like, okay, I've worked in this clinical sense, but I've never done business development. And for people out there that are like, what does that mean? It means going out and building relationships with other treatment centers. And so nobody's meeting, right? Like I'm supposed to be connecting with these people. I hate Zoom. Sorry. I just, I hate it. I despise it. I like, like to be in person, exactly, right? Yeah. You can actually get to know the person. So I'm like, what am I going to do? How am I going to do this? And so I started just going online and just going live. Like, hey, I'm just trying to connect with people. I started doing business development at a treatment center. You know, if you'd like to connect, like, let's chat, right? And so that led into me going, wow, it'd be really cool to, like, actually interview people and have a podcast. And so I started doing that. During the pandemic, that's a perfect time to start a podcast. I had, like, the chairs, you know, a certain distance apart. People were all for it. And so I did that for, like, three and a half years. But I felt like there was a lot more that I could do and that my abilities and my potential was being limited just working in that space because it wasn't mine. You know, like I didn't have all the creative say. It was for another company. I took a leap of faith, you know, and I made the choice and decision that I'm going to do this and I'm going to do it on my own. And as soon as I made that choice, it's like all the doors opened up for me. Yeah. Like when you step into that fear and that uncomfortable feeling, and I've seen that in my life over the past seven years, how that's worked in my life. And it's never let me down. It's never yeah. failed. Anytime I've decided to do something for the right reasons, <clears throat> and I truly believe in it and have the intent for it to be meaningful and to help somebody in return, it always works out. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. So that's the short of it. Doing this sometimes, I'm scared. I have fear. Like going out in public, interviewing strangers, there's fear behind that. It's a healthy fear. Yeah, getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. That's the main thing I've learned these past two years. Yeah, and I identified with what you said. I thought my life was over when I got sober. I didn't think there was gonna be any fun. And I was ashamed to tell people I was in recovery and sober, but now I'm really out and proud about it. So Love. that's really cool, Love yeah. It. yeah. <laughs> nice. So you said you're seven years sober. What has been your process to realizing that you needed sobriety? Yeah, I was in denial for a really long time. Um, you know, I actively used drugs and alcohol for over 20 years. So like I was off running and gunning at like 12 years old. So really experimenting with drugs, drinking. I had a really traumatic childhood. I was abused pretty much my whole entire childhood from a family member sexually abused. So that like set me up down this road of, you know, self-soothing, trying to numb myself. You know, what, whatever I could do to, to not feel. And like I always say, it's like I didn't realize that when I was trying to numb the bad, you numb the good too. Because the yeah. drugs and alcohol don't know like, oh, I'm just going to numb this bad stuff for you. Yeah, yeah you're just numbing overall. Just numbing over everything. And at such a young age, I mean, I wasn't, you know, the emotional development and everything in my life wasn't there. So I was like super stunted in that space. And so a lot of things were really confusing for me. You know, I didn't... Um, I didn't understand what it felt like to be safe, to be loved properly. And it just set me down a path of really bad behaviors, toxic relationships, if you will. Wait, why do you use air Because a lot of people hate the word toxic, like that no one is toxic or, you know, a toxic relationship really doesn't exist. It's really about people's behaviors and the work that they need to do on themselves and what we're willing to put ourselves through or not put ourselves through. So I mean, when you break it down, like, 
on a ther like from a therapist level, right? Yeah. It actually does make a lot of sense, but it's just an easy way to say it. So I'm like, yeah, whatever, toxic relationship. Way to say toxic. Um, until I healed myself, I wasn't able to see what I was putting myself through, yes. right? And so yeah, because of those traumas you said you experienced, we choose certain people that are familiar to us and what we're used to experiencing. Yeah, exactly. So I was over sexualized at a very young age. You know, was seeking out relationships that were unhealthy for me because they were they were comfortable you know i was comfortable in that space i was also comfortable in that like misery you know a lot of people have a hard time getting to the point of like doing the work because it's easier to just be like angry and it's easier to be a victim right like i can just sit in this and that's okay i'm yeah. comfortable here and so at 19 i decided i had this great idea i had no impulse control like that was another thing in my addiction no impulse control whatsoever i would just react impulsively and make horrible emotional decisions. And so, you know, I thought, okay, I'm going to go to California and I'm going to live the Hollywood dream at 19. Where were you from previously? I'm from Canada. So I grew up in Vancouver. And so I made this decision to come out to the States and move to Hollywood. I had dabbled in like acting and modeling as a teenager, landed some gigs. And so I landed a show up in LA and I was like, all right, I'm going to go, I'm going to do this TV show. And I'm just going to live the Hollywood dream. And so I came out here with a suitcase, $3,000, didn't know anybody except the person I was about to marry and get a green card. You were 18? 19. 19. And so I came out here and, uh, and that's what I proceeded to do. And I was just off and running. And through all that, even deciding to move out here, you were in your addiction? Oh, yeah. Like it started with like psychedelics, um, smoking a lot of weed drinking a lot i was a big raver so like a lot of ecstasy things like that um a lot of xanax even at a young age and so by the time i got out here i was doctor prescribed xanax adderall and norcos what's your opinion on that on doctors prescribing first of all xanax and then adderall prescriptions i think it should be personally um personally i think it should be a lot harder to get a prescription I think that there needs to be more regulation in that area, um, more education. You know, when somebody is going to school to become a doctor, I think it's like, we were just talking about this. It's a very, very, very small amount of time that is actually spent being educated on drugs and alcohol, addiction, um, that yeah. process of dealing with patients. It's like, here's your whole schooling and then it's like, this much probably time. like maybe a few hours in their education and i can't remember the exact amount of hours that's why i'm like it's just but it's a very very small like a weekend kind of thing right? yeah and so um i think there needs to be yeah it needs to be it needs to be way more education it needs to be regulated way more and drug addicts and alcoholics we know how to manipulate of course we can say the right thing then boom we have a xanax prescription exactly and like psychiatrists should know this you know what i mean like they should know like hey they're pulling a fast one or look into your history do more it's like because i would be able to go to a psychiatrist and i would know ex i could go right now i could leave here right now and go make an appointment with a psychiatrist and go in there i'm not going to say it in detail to give anyone ideas but i could go in there and say all the right things and walk out with a script for xanax and adderall no problem crazy and that should not be the way it is and i've even had clients in the past where when I was a case manager where uh, they would be in treatment 
and they would be going to like an outside, I'd find out like an outside psychiatrist and the psychiatrist would know they're in treatment and they're writing them a script for Adderall. Yeah, or sometimes I hear stories of people in recovery and they're like, yeah, I have this surgery or I have a surgery to go to and they let the doctor know that they're an addict and that they're in recovery and that they only really want like ibuprofen or something like that. Yeah. And doctors are still very adamant about like giving them something else. Even though they're really dead set on like, please, no, I only want ibuprofen. It's nuts. And they, so they push. They, they totally pushing. push it. And that's like, unfortunately, not to be negative, but, you know, we could go down a rabbit hole for days with big pharma and what that really looks like. I just watched Painkiller. I think it was on. Somebody, the chef have just you, told me have to you watch watched it. it? No, somebody okay, just but like, if you watch it. that, like, it just, it just sums it up in a nutshell. It's like, this is on a, such a bigger level of what's going on. And, and it is for profit. Right. And so I think. It's not, it's not going to change. So the best thing that we can do is bring awareness, educate as much as we can and have this conversation, you know, because if I had a known and who knows, right. But if I had a known how addicting these medications were, I maybe, maybe would have thought twice about it, but I didn't know. Yeah. And I only realized that there was a problem when I tried to stop. When it's like, holy shit, like now I'm going into massive withdrawal. Like I didn't even know what would what withdrawal meant. Like I wasn't hanging out with drug addicts. I wasn't a treatment person. Like I was just me living my life, taking these medications that I was prescribed by a doctor. And then, yeah, one day I was like, I'm going to just try to stop this stuff. And I was insanely sick. And so my mind that's trying to kill me, right, because I don't know yet that I'm an addict alcoholic is saying, oh, well, I guess that just means that you shouldn't stop. Of course. And you, and you should probably that's, just go get more. That's Duh. what our heads tell us, by the way. The sickness is yeah. trying to kill us. So it really does start in the brain with addiction. I just really want to make that clear. It starts with our brain, because you even said you kind of use it to mask these feelings on the inside. Get rid of that negativity you were feeling. And then when you wanted to stop, it became a physical dependency and you really couldn't. Yeah. Yeah, so that's what happened mm -hmm. with, with that part anyways, with uh, trying to stop. And I realized like it was really a problem late 20s probably. So like a good, you know, 10, 15 years into it, I started to really realize like, okay, there's a serious problem here. But it wasn't enough to get me sober, mm -hmm. you know. Um, like I said, I wasn't hanging out with drug addicts. So it was like a harder process for me because... I had things, you know, like I have a nice house and I have a nice car yeah. and I have nice things and I don't look like I'm sick. And and I had nobody holding me accountable. All my family, you know, friends, they're all back in Canada and here I am just out here by myself. And, the, you know, I'm working in film and television, um, which led me into some other things. But... You know, it's nobody was saying, hey, oh, this, hey, you might want to like slow down, you know, like no one's saying that to me. So it just took longer for me to realize like there wasn't our brains. We self-deceive. Yeah. We can't always see the truth. No. And there was no like bottoms. Yeah. You know what I mean? It wasn't like, oh, fuck, I'm homeless. Oh, I don't. Yeah. No external bottoms. Yeah. So there you, was no. You felt it I was dead on the inside. Yeah. yeah. Like someone once told me once long time ago, they said, don't die while you're still alive. Right. And um, and that's truly what was going on. That's what eventually got me sober was that I knew it was going to be life or death if I didn't make a decision to get sober. Yeah. So you said you were in the adult entertainment industry mm -hmm. and I had previously referred to it as sex work. 
And why did you not like that wording? Uh, just because it, it wasn't sex work to me, you know, and people call it whatever they want to call it. In the industry that I was in, in adult film entertainment, um, nobody called it sex work. Um, they, whether you're glamorizing it or, or not, I mean, I guess I could be just glamorizing it because I don't like to be called that, right? Maybe yeah. that's just part of my own thing that I still deal with, not sure. Um, just like in my addiction, it's like, all right, well, I never put a needle in my arm. I, now I know that I was just as bad. Right. But back then it's like, I don't, I don't do meth. I take Adderall. Yeah. <laughs> a molecule off. I'm so much better. Right. So, yeah. I mean, that could be what's going on with that. I don't really know, but, um, but yeah, it was adult film industry. Um, but it was like a slow progression into that. Just like my addiction, you know, it was a slow progression. I started out doing mainstream modeling, TV shows, movies, little parts and movies here and there. And I was addicted to chasing the money. And mm -hmm. so that was like another addiction for me. And, you know, I was always chasing stuff, you know, anything that could fill this void that at the time I didn't know that I had. I just knew that I like wanted all these things and wanted this fast paced life and wanted to chase this and chase that. So because I was chasing the money and fame quickly, you know, there was a lot of temptations and offers in that space. So, you know, first it was like, hey, would you do a cover of this magazine? It's an adult magazine. You're going to have to take your top off. We're going to pay you this amount of money. I'm like, okay, I'll do it. Worth it. I'll yeah. do it, right? I'll do yeah. it. And then it was like, okay, well, how about this magazine? Now you're going to have to be naked, you know? And so that went on for like, a long time, probably a couple of years where I was just doing like magazine work, doing covers, doing photo shoots, things like that. And then I got approached to actually sign a contract with one of the main adult film uh, companies, Playboy. Um, they had uh, a company called Club Jenna that Jenna Jameson owned, who was a good friend of mine for a very long time, still talk to her to this day. She called me and said, hey, would you be willing to come meet me and talk to me about this? And I was like, oh, what would that look like? You know, and she's like, well, we'd like to sign you to an adult, um, contract to be a porn star and I was like well I'm not gonna have sex with guys like that was my like standard right I had my limits I'm like I'm not gonna have sex with guys um but I'll I'm willing to have a conversation about like a girl girl contract and so that's the road I went down signed a girl girl contract with Club Jenna um became the top girl girl you know porn star in the industry back in the day and was chasing that for a long time so as you can imagine like the lifestyle in that there's like such a false sense of reality working in that field. So here I am working in this field where it's not like real life. You know, I go by an AKA. So no one even knows who I am. No one knows who I am. They don't know what my real name is. They don't know what I do when I get home. They don't know what I look like without hair and makeup done. They don't like I'm a character. Yeah. I'm literally playing a character. You had lost yourself. Completely. So yeah. So here I am dead on the inside already because of the drugs and alcohol. And now I'm playing this character and there's like no sense of self. And so, you know, I'd go home and, and be like, okay, you know, I'm just, this is just who I am. This is just what I'm going to do. Yeah. And I did that for several years and it's from being over-sexualized, you know, from, from childhood abuse, the adult industry in general, it's over 85% of the people that get into the adult industry have suffered sexual trauma and abuse at some point in their life, yes. if not higher. The numbers are probably even higher than that, but that's just the research that they've done because it's not normal behavior. You know, like for me, I could take off my clothes so easily back then. And, I, and, and my sick mind was like, oh, wow, cool. Like, you don't have a problem taking off your clothes. Like, how cool. You can make all this money 
and do all these things and be around these people and live this lifestyle. Like how awesome for you that you're so comfortable taking your clothes off. Well, <laughs> it was super unhealthy. Yeah. You know, nobody should be that comfortable in that kind of setting, just taking their clothes off and doing that. Like I look back on it now and I don't regret anything I did in my life because it all brought me to where I am today. Yeah. And I wouldn't change a second of it, the good, the bad, you know, everything in between. But I can't imagine, I'm like, what would it take for me to do that now? Like someone could throw down a million dollars cash on this table and I would be like, eh, I don't think so. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's almost like you have a different level of self-worth now. I'm healed. It's not about the money for you anymore. I'm a healed person now, yeah. you know? And so before it was chasing the lifestyle, chasing the money, chasing the drugs and alcohol and running for myself. You were referring to it looking back in hindsight, but what effect did it have on your mental health back then? Well, I mean, I was taking like massive amounts of Xanax for, uh, for my anxiety. So I was diagnosed, you know, socialized anxiety. I have get really bad like social anxiety. That's something yeah. that I've always struggled with. And I never thought being totally honest that I'd be able to be off all medications. I don't take any medications. Oh yeah. And if you do need to take medications then then that's, you know, what you need to do. But for me, I was able to come off everything completely. But yeah, at the time it was not good on my mental health. Um, and my anxiety was higher and worse than it ever was, you know, because essentially I was living a life that wasn't my life. It was this fake facade mm -hmm. of who I was. Yeah, recently, like almost a year ago, I just came off of all medications. Nice. And as somebody who is really dependent on street Xanax, mm -hmm. because I never grew up with parents who took me to a psychiatrist or really gave any attention to my mental health, I never saw one until I came to treatment. So it was really crazy for me to think that somebody riddled with so much anxiety and depression, I don't have to be dependent on medication a day. I can kind of cope with life on life's terms today. Nice. It's, it's mind blowing. But 100%, some people really do have different brain chemistry where they do need to take medication. Yeah, exactly. And what really worked for me is that um, I started doing like in recovery, right? So just jumping ahead, but I just want to say this real quick in case I forget later. Exposure therapy. Like that was like what really made the difference for me. Mm -hmm. You know, I did a lot of therapy. I've did years and years of therapy, but exposure therapy, anyone out there that's like suffering with anxiety really bad, social anxiety, um, I had to put myself in situations that made me uncomfortable and walk through it with my therapist. So like, for example, my anxiety was so bad back then that like, if I walked into a bank and there was, let's say 10, 15 people in line, I'd have to leave. Cause I would just get this overwhelming feeling like I was gonna pass out, I was gonna throw up. I'd start getting a tunnel vision, everything would start going and I'd have to leave. I'd do the same thing in a grocery store. If I walked into like a big mall and I didn't know where the exit was and it, would, it was too loud, I would have a freak out, restaurant, like all that stuff. And so I started seeing a therapist to do that type of work, exposure therapy, and he was like, all right, Jenny, so like, what's the worst that's gonna happen? I said, well, worst that's gonna happen is I'm gonna pass out or I'm gonna throw up or I'm gonna start hyperventilating or I'm just gonna start acting like a fool. And they're like, okay. And so we would start going to these places and I would act out if that happened. I'd like lay down on the floor or whatever it is that I was gonna do. And what happened was I had support and I was able to push through it because that's only gonna, it's only gonna last so long and then you're gonna overcome it, right? Yeah. So for me, exposure therapy was big in my life, made yes. a big difference. 
Yeah, I tried exposure therapy with rejection. Okay. I went and I put myself in situations in public where I knew I was going to get rejected. Uh-huh. That video took me so long because I was procrastinating for like 15 minutes walking up to a person just to get told no, even though that was what I was expecting. I was just asking a question to get a no, and I still had so much anxiety with that. Yeah. Um, But it's so much easier said than done to walk through that fear. But that's literally what you have to do. Yeah. And that support that you were getting is essential. Like, you, you need that support, but there's no way to go around that fear. You have to go through it. Yeah, and that's all part of the recovery process, right? Yeah. You know, it's like, this isn't something that you just get and then it just gets better. I mean, this is a journey and mm -hmm. we're going to be on it for the rest of our lives. And for me, it was the first five years of my recovery, it was a lot of work. Like, I don't feel like I really healed the way I needed to for a good five years. Why do you think that was? It just takes that long. Like they say, like there's a lot of people out there, you can read, you can do the research. They say the first five years is when you learn the most about yourself. Like for me, I used drugs and alcohol for 20 years. I had all these behaviors just to like get past that, reprogram your brain essentially, heal yourself, heal the trauma, heal your brain. Mm -hmm. It takes a very long time. Yeah, to change the behavior as well. Just to get the drugs and alcohol completely out of your system. I mean, for me, the Xanax and the opiates were so deeply rooted on a cellular level in my tissues and my muscle and everything that it felt like it took like about 18 months. I've heard it takes about 18 months. To feel just normal, right? In the sense of not always having to chew gum, not clenching my jaw, not hearing a buzzing sound, feeling comfortable in my own skin. Like it, it literally took me that long. Mm -hmm. And then after that, you know, starting to do the work, you know, I worked an AA program um, for solid for the first couple of years, you know, going through that whole process of working the steps, doing amends, being of service. But there was a lot of deep, deep work that I needed to do, you know, to heal myself, my trauma, so that I wasn't sitting in that space anymore. And it just, it took that long, you know, and it took time for me to understand who I was, what I wanted to do with my life, you know, what I was willing to settle in, in certain situations, what I wasn't, building my confidence, building my self-love. Some of the biggest things for me were turning being a victim into a survivor. Because when we stay in that victim state of mind, we stay sick. Mm -hmm. And I was like comfortable in that for so long. And when I became a survivor, that was a game changer too. It was like a thousand pounds got lifted off my shoulder. But in becoming a survivor, I had to find forgiveness, which is a really hard thing to do. And understanding what forgiveness really looks like. Like forgiveness isn't forgiving the act, right? It's, it's not okay what people did to you. But forgiving and turning it over to whatever your higher power, whatever it means to you. So you don't have to hold on to that. Because yeah. I didn't realize how much pain I was going through and how much control these people and situations still had over me because I was a victim and I hadn't forgiven. And so, you know, forgiving, doing that whole process, that was a game changer as well. And then also like, honestly, seeing my part in things, having, having accountability. Yeah, knowing that we that played, self -awareness, a, have played a part in it. We all play a part in everything. We do. And like, yeah, I, those things I didn't deserve to go through, but I played a part in it, you know, in everything in my whole life and being able to use that into action in your everyday life, like looking at every situation, looking at your part in it is huge. Yeah. Like those are all things like big aha moments that were like year after year, like another aha, 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 yeah. aha. <laughs> yeah, like realizations of 
this is why I am the way I am. And so it's really the last two years where I feel like, okay, like I'm not restless, irritable, discontent. I have peace in my life. Mm -hmm. I'm happy just being me. Um, what you think of me is none of my business. I'm, I'm cool with being vulnerable. I'm cool with sharing my story fully. And just, just this knowledge that I've, an experience that I've got over time, you know, and the process is different for everybody, but it is a thing where people say the first five years, you know, you really do a lot of like self-discovery. 100%. When I had 18 months, I thought I had it all figured out. Uh -huh. So it got me figured out. Of course. I know what I'm doing as a career. I just didn't think there was anything else for me to learn. And I found that to be so untrue and I'm having that experience. Yeah. I'm just now at two years sober taking a look at my inner child. I didn't even realize I had an inner child. I never gave her any love or attention. I ignored her like I pretended she didn't exist. Yeah. So that's... It's fascinating, right? And it's yeah. like this magical space and I like want to continue down that like i want to say in five years from now like holy shit i've now learned this 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 to keep learning like we get sober and it's like okay now what do we do with this mm -hmm. you know like it's one thing to get sober yeah that's tough but it's like a superpower you know like we have this opportunity to learn and grow and help others and and be whoever we want to be like that was another thing too that i learned over the the main five years of like growth was i would always look at other people and have this like mentality of all right cool well I'm, I'm glad that's working for you or when i first start going to meetings i'd go and sit in a meeting i'd be like yeah maybe for you we're terminally unique yeah like, it's no one has it like i did and i'm so different and whoop whoop mm -hmm. whoop and and when i was able to shift my mindset to the why not me mentality things really changed for me too like well why can't i be successful why can't I have a voice. Mm -hmm. Why can't I have this podcast? Why can't I blow this huge, blow up this huge platform that I want to do? Like I can, and I will because I believe in myself and like truly getting to that point of authentically and genuinely believing in yourself. Yeah. Cause our head will tell us a bunch of shit. Our head is our enemy sometimes truly. But if we can like truly believe at least like in our mission of what we're doing, why not? Why can't it work? Mm -hmm. You know? So that was a game changer too. A hundred percent. So you've been working with the fuck fentanyl movement. Yeah. They're, they're close friends of mine. Um, uh, Tyson's amazing. So yeah, fuck fentanyl. So my big things is bringing awareness for drugs and alcohol, um, fentanyl epidemic mm -hmm. and trafficking. Like I have this shirt on today. Bikers again. Trafficking. So it's, I work with them. I, you know, anybody that I can support to do with trafficking, anything with the stigmas, like I'm all about that stuff. So yeah, fuck fentanyl is near and dear to my heart. It's just this epidemic. This is a weapon of mass destruction. 300 people a day are dying from fentanyl. That's an airplane going down every single day. We need to be bringing awareness and we need to create change because this isn't just killing homeless people on the street. Like this will come knocking at your door sooner or later in one way or another. It's affecting our moms, our dads, our brothers, our sisters, our children, and it's in everything. I have a 15 year old son and I'm like, you know that you cannot like recreationally use drugs like I used to when I was your age. Times like, have the times have changed. And so we have to change. Like the way that we do treatment, the way that we talk to kids, the way that 
like going in doing drugs are bad in elementary school like cut that shit out like that isn't gonna work anymore yeah. like we need to be going into elementary schools and talking mm. like we need to be bringing awareness we need to be going all the way you know to the white house and and knocking on their door what does that actually look like well we need to come together and figure that out because again just like the other stuff this is on such a bigger level of things that we don't even probably know about of where it was actually happening and that's probably not going to really change but what we can't not going to change fast i should say but what we can do is educate have this conversation and come together education is so key 100 percent. talk to our kids yeah you know talk like this this needs to be a thing that's like a normal thing to talk about. It's crazy because sometimes we'll wear like the fuck fentanyl shirts or the hat. And my son sports it all the time. People are like, oh, that's inappropriate. He's a minor. I'm like, fuck you. Like, honestly, like this should be talked to the, the six-year-olds, seven-year-olds. Like everybody should understand what fentanyl is. They should be aware. Yeah. They need to be aware. This isn't like, oh, don't talk to them. People have this like weird thing where it's like, if you talk to them about it and they know about it, then they're going to want to do it. And it's like, I don't, I'm not, no, I don't agree with that. Like, bless your hearts for thinking that, but I would rather rather educate my son and have him know everything there is to know about this drug and everything that it's in than not telling him in fear that he's going to do it. Yeah, I don't believe in ignorance is bliss. No, not neither at do all. I. And that's why I recover out loud. And like, people are dying. I hear about someone dying, I swear to God, like once a week. Like, it's just people are dropping like flies. Like the days of using drugs recreationally is over. That like you could go out and hit a hit a weed pen and you're dead. You know, yeah. you could go out and, oh, friend, here, have this pill. My, I got it from my mom's cabinet. Sure, you're dead. Like, it's just, it's Russian roulette anytime you use drugs at this point in our lives. You could die. You could be doing drugs for the first time in your life and you could overdose. And that's what's happening. Yeah. And it's so heartbreaking. Like, it's so sad. And um, there just there needs to be more education. Like the more I keep talking about it, the more I, I'm starting to think like, how do I get involved with the school districts? Because I know somebody that does that. Yeah, where, where he goes around and it's not about the fentanyl per se, but he goes around, he goes more like high schools, but he's out like 250 days out of the year. Like that's his thing. He does public speaking at like high schools. And I'm like, yeah, but like, I feel like I should go talk at like elementary schools. And we need, we need, we need to be doing that. Like, we need to do that. Yeah. We will. We have to be loud. We will. We have to be really loud and relentless. Relentless. Because the drug, unfortunately, is not going away. And it's I not. I fucking hate to say that, but it's not going to go away. And now they're mixing in xylazine. Yes. It makes the Narcan less effective. Like, you might have to use six doses of Narcan. It's because insane. xylazine is not an opiate and Narcan is for opioids. Yeah. So it is getting crazy and there's more than just fentanyl out there now. Yeah. And it's only going to get worse in that sense. So, yeah, we need to, we need to be screaming yeah. this. Yeah, and addicts struggling with mental health and mental illness, like they're the targets and it sucks because we feel like we need the drugs and alcohol to live, to feel okay. And we're dying in that process. Absolutely, they are. Yeah. So I wanted to ask if there was any stigmas that have affected you or others in your life regarding substance abuse or anything else you've experienced. I mean, I've definitely experienced lots of different stigmas, but, you know, working in the adult industry, definitely... Um, there's been stigmas and judgment with that. I think just the message for anybody, like you aren't your past. You know what I mean? Like, don't, don't sit there. Don't live there. Don't, don't sit in that shit. You know, get out of your own way. You are who you make yourself, right? And, and we were just talking about this on the drive up here that like truly 
you need to go through everything you went through and whatever you're going through right now to get to where you're meant to be. And I know it's cliche, but it all happens for a reason, right? So like, don't be down on yourself. Mm -hmm. if, if you have a past or have done something where there's a stigma around it that you're not a good person or something like it's a bunch of bullshit. It's all a bunch of bullshit. And you know, the stigmas with, with mental health and, and all of that, it's just, you know, I, I went through that too. Like with my anxiety and ADHD, you know, I was in a marriage for a long time and my ex-husband was always, what is wrong with you? Just, mm. just like get over it. Like you're so strong in all these other ways. There's no reason why you can't just self-will not having anxiety and ADHD. And as crazy as that sounds to us, like there's a lot of people out there that are treating their loved ones and their spouses and yeah. like they really, cause they don't know. Yeah, like they think you can just cut it out or snap out of it. Yeah, like just don't be like that. And like that is just the stigma. And it's like, no, like if you have a chemical imbalance in your brain, <laughs> you can't just go, okay, I'm just gonna stop being like that. I wish it was that easy. <laughs> yeah, and so I think like, just get the support you need, you know, get a community of people around you that understands. Like for me, that was so key was having people that I could relate to um, and building like a really strong support system and mentors in my life that had gone through similar situations. Mm -hmm. So yeah, those are like the main stigmas. So what are you doing today in your actions to break the stigma? To break those stigmas? Yeah, well, I talk about it. Yeah. You know what I mean? I, I, I bring it to life, I get into action. This, the whole platform and everything that I'm doing is to bring awareness to all these stigmas. To, to let people know like, hey, this is a safe place to have these conversations, you know, because that's what we need to be doing. The only way stigmas are going to break is by having this conversation on a huge level. 100%. Is there any other message you want to say to anybody out there listening? I always say this because this was my biggest thing, finally getting help, was that I looked at asking for help as a weakness for so long, like so many years, because I was stuck in that stigma of you should just be strong enough. And asking for help is the most courageous thing you could do. It's strong, it's brave. And once you finally do that, it's like a thousand pounds gets lifted off your shoulders. You know, surrendering to that process and having the willingness because it's not a weakness. Asking for help is not a weakness. It's really a strength. It's a, it's, it's so brave. Yeah. It took me a while to accept help because I felt like a burden. Yeah. And even when I got a sponsor at first, it was like, oh, I don't want to call my sponsor. Even though my sponsor was like, check in with me. I'm like, oh, should I? I'm probably yeah. bothering her. Yeah, like, this is Don't that think important. that way. Yeah. Yeah. Get that out of your head. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your story and bringing things to light. Of course. And I'll have Jenny Sober Lifestyle Podcast and all her links and social medias linked in the description below. Nice. And thank you for watching. Bye, guys.